Hey friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. We're back again today and the project is to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. If you've just joined us for the first time today, then why not consider going right back to the start and joining us on this daily journey together of having the rhythm of the study of the Bible in your life every day, well, Monday to Friday anyway, for the next five or so years. Today, we are jumping out again into this study of Genesis chapter uh, 38, this rather troubling story of the relationship between Judah and Tamar via his two sons. Well, just a quick reminder to any new amongst you is that there's always a transcript of each and every one of these podcasts available for you free without copyright and you'll find it in the episode notes of any audio version of the podcast. It doesn't matter which platform you choose to access your podcasts from, you'll find the link there in the episode notes which is hosted on the Buzzsprout podcast website. You'll also find links there of other ways you can connect to my ministry, but I'll tell you more about that at the end. Anyway, that's it for now. I'll see you at the end and we'll dive straight into the main text. Okay, we're back again. We're just going to finish off today this two-part study in Genesis chapter 38, looking at the second half of this chapter, this very difficult, challenging chapter on the story of Judah and his relationship with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. So you hopefully remember where we dropped off last time. Remember, Judah had had three sons, the oldest of which he had married to Tamar, a local Canaanite woman. That was important. But he died, and the second son is then given to Tamar as a wife, which was normal in those days, in order to provide a child for her and protect the family line through the firstborn son. But he deliberately failed in his marital obligations, and now the third son is old enough to get married to Tamar, but Judah has done nothing yet to bring them together. So, the first two husbands died, and now the third one, although old enough to get married, it hasn't happened yet. So let's pick up the narrative of the story in verse 18, where it tells us, When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. Now remember, he's on his way journeying, and she's decided to intercept him on his journey by covering herself with a veil and sitting by the side of the road, knowing that he would pass. So the text says, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had a covered face, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law. Now, so he doesn't know that this is his daughter-in-law. That's very important. And he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. So do you understand what's going on here? I mean, <laughs> I did mention that this was a rather seedy, trashy story. It wouldn't uh, look out of place in a modern day soap opera, would it? Anyway, let's carry on. I'll send you a young goat for my flock, he said. So now they're negotiating. They're negotiating the price for what's going to go on. That is what is happening here. So they're negotiating the price and, and he tells her, well, he'll give her a goat. Right. Okay. Let's see what it says next. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asks. 
So he's not got the goat with him, so she wants some pledge, something that's recognizable to him, a promise that she'll then get what he says he'll, he'll pay her. And he says, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. That's interesting because those things that would be uniquely his, wouldn't they? So he gives them to her and he slept with her and she became pregnant by him. Now, remember, at this point in the story, the whole thing is these various brothers were supposed to have been given with her as an, a way to supply her with an offspring. So the way she is going to get pregnant here, well, it's, uh, it's interesting to say the least, isn't it? Strange to think that the child that results from this union is in a sense what the Lord wanted, but interesting, she, Tamar, deceives Judah in order to get the result. Now, if you've been listening to me as we've been going through the book of Genesis, you'll notice that this story might ring some bells for you. Who got deceived previously in this book? Of course, Jacob. Jacob deceived Esau, and then he turned around himself and got deceived by Laban. So what we're seeing here is a family pattern, isn't it? We're seeing that deception sort of runs in this family because now Jacob's son, Judah, gets deceived by a woman. And this is not the first time or the last time that this will happen in the Bible or, as a matter of fact, in real life, I'm sure. Anyway, the text continues. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adumalite, in order to give his pledge back to the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who is beside the road at Inayim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. Remember, she wanted to have his seal and his cord and his staff, and that was the pledge that she would hold on to until she received the gift of the goat. That was the deal, but the guy who goes with the goat can't find her, and when he asks where is this prostitute who plied her trade openly by the side of the road here, they reply, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't have any prostitutes working here. And that, of course, was the truth, because she wasn't a prostitute in the strictest terms of the word. Judah might have thought she was a prostitute, but she had just tricked him. She was just there for the one specific purpose of tricking her own father-in-law into getting her pregnant. The story continues. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamer is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. So now the assumption is made by those who live around Tamer is that she must have become a prostitute because she's pregnant, that she must have been playing the harlot, as it says in the King James Version, which of course isn't true. So whether or not there's been a strict adultery is questionable here, but Judah initially calls for her to be brought out and to be burned. Now remember, Judah at this point doesn't know what really happened. So as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law and said, I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said, 
and she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. So this message that she sent back to her father-in-law included those elements that he'd given her after he'd slept with her. So she doesn't accuse him of anything. She just says, if you want to know who the father of the child is, then just look at these and the father of this child is the one to whom these things belong. Wow, talk about a twisting, conniving plot. Judah then, wow, what does he think? He must have been gobsmacked, he would say, by today's standard. The text tells us Judah recognized them and says, she is more righteous than I. I wouldn't give her to my son Sheila, and he did not sleep with her again. So there is some sort of recognition of what's going on here. And what might some would say that Judah has finally come good out of this. He has readily admitted that he had interfered in his own son's not sleeping with her. So although it didn't reveal it too closely in the text earlier, these verses suggest that he interfered in this process of them having a, uh, the, the follow-on sons having a child through her. And it also tells us that he never takes advantage of her again. So to his credit, at this point, he has confessed and he confesses that he has indeed sinned. For in his mind, of course, he had sinned when he believed that he was sleeping with a prostitute. It then tells us, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. And as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it onto his wrist and said, this one came out first. Now this as well may sound familiar. You may be asking yourself, haven't I seen this? Haven't we heard something like this before? This is a situation where again, they need to determine which son comes out first. And because the arm appears, they mark it with the cord. And that's the way of knowing no matter what transpires over the next few hours of labor, that was the firstborn. But you have to say when reading that, what goes around comes around. History, it appears, goes in cycles, particularly in the family line of Jacob. Okay, verse 29. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out and he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zerah. All right, that's the story. So you don't need to waste any more time watching any more trashy soap operas, because it's all the twists and turns and all the machinations of life in all its negative colors can be seen here. But what in the world is the point of this story? What can we glean from this? What can we learn from this? Well, I do believe the story is ultimately about God's faithfulness because God did say back to Abraham and he repeated it to Isaac and he repeated it again to Jacob that he was going to raise up a great nation through them. So God ultimately, the big picture here is God is simply ensuring that he is faithful to his promises in spite of the machinations of human beings. But what makes it so interesting is that in this chapter, he does this, he brings about these purposes in spite of these incredible sins of Judah. And that's incredible in itself. So let me lay out in very simple, clear language what I believe 
this chapter teaches. And I'll do that by making three straightforward statements. Firstly, this chapter is filled with unbelievable wickedness and sin. And on this occasion, that sin comes close to something we today would call incest. One commentator I read said this chapter records the extent of the compromise of the Israelites, especially Judah, with these local Canaanites. This is the first time one of the chosen seed has selected a wife outside the family of the patriarchs. Now, Isa had done it before, but Judah has chosen a wife from the woman of the land and one of these Canaanite women who were specifically, particularly barred from marrying. The simple reality is God's servants, and I'm using a very broad term here because they're not, certainly not behaving like God's servants at this point, but God's servants can do absolutely abominable things. Now, it's very popular today among some circles to preach that because someone does something bad, that means they can't possibly be a Christian because they say, well, Christians don't do things like that. Now, I have to say, I wonder what book they're reading because it's certainly not the Bible. Well, you can't possibly reach that conclusion. We've now ourselves spent a lot of time lately in the Old Testament, obviously in the book of Genesis. And this sort of behavior, well, it's not been the exception. It's almost been the rule. I mean, the simple reality is that believers are capable of unimaginable, unbelievable sin. So you can't just look at someone's life and use that to determine whether you think they're a believer or not, because believers can do unimaginable things. Believers will sin and often will continue to sin. And this chapter is another illustration of that fact that this unbelievable sins that God's servants can commit incest they can visit prostitutes later on in the bible we'll actually get to see things like murder yet still god will fulfill his purposes so the second observation i want to make is this chapter is an illustration of the faithfulness of god in the sense that that's the whole point of the chapter god says i'm going to raise up a nation through jacob and judah and that was his plans and he ends up having three sons none of whom have descendants as was originally planned but judah then ends up sleeping with tamer his daughter-in-law unbeknownst that it was her and she has twins of course and those twins we will find out later become the future leaders of the tribe of judah one commentator said just as is in chapter 20 where the seed of Abraham was protected by Abimelech the king. I don't know if you remember that, where he refused to take advantage of Abraham's wife, thinking that it was his sister. In this occasion, it's the woman Tamar, not the patriarch himself, who is ultimately responsible for the survival of the nation of Israel and for producing the descendants of the house of Judah. So God is faithful and even uses a Canaanite woman to bring about his purposes. Remember, Judah was the one who, with his brothers, sold his younger brother Joseph into Egypt, into slavery. So this is a pretty disrespectful character here. Judah and his own family, despite their attempts to hinder God's plan through Tamar, God still worked it out. So putting these two things together, it shows me that people are unfaithful to God frequently, regularly, but God is always faithful. And that's the point. 
you can still depend upon the faithfulness of God and you still can depend on God to fulfill his promises. Now, in the last episode at the beginning of this study, looking at chapter 38, I quoted two verses from the New Testament. One that said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1 19. And then in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, it tells us that even if we fall into temptation, God will always give us a route out of that temptation and a way of escaping any possible consequences as long as we remain faithful to him. Now God was faithful to his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and likewise he will remain faithful to those promises he's given to us just like these promises given to us in the New Testament faithful not only to forgive us but also faithful to protect us. But there's one more statement I'd like to make Statement number one is this chapter is filled with unbelievable sin. Statement number two is that this chapter is an illustration of the unbelievable faithfulness of God. The third statement is, is this chapter is also an indication of the unbelievable grace of God. You see, when we get to the New Testament, we're going to start by reading the Gospel of Matthew. And right there in chapter one, in the earliest verses, Tamar, is mentioned. Her name is in verse 3, right at the beginning of the family line of the Messiah. There are several women who are named in the family line of Jesus contained within the gospel accounts and the genealogies. Matthew chapter 1, I'm not going to take the time to read it today, but it starts out by saying this, Jesus was the son of Abraham and it lists the genealogy from Abraham to Joseph and there are women listed within that genealogy, not just men, but women. But what is fascinating is that the women are listed. Well, one of them, the first one is Tamer, and we now know what she did. She deceived her father-in-law and tricks him into anonymously sleeping with her, yet he still gets her in the messianic line. The next woman that is mentioned is Rahab, and she was a prostitute, well, certainly in the early part of her life. That was her profession. Another woman in the genealogical line of the Messiah is Ruth, who persuaded Boaz to marry her by using, one might say, the questionable technique of spending a night with him as he slept intoxicated on the threshing floor, didn't sleep with him, but lay at his feet. These women are all listed in Matthew chapter 1. And then, of course, there's Beersheba. We get to her later in the genealogy, who became the wife of David, but not after first committing adultery with him. They're all listed in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Christ. And the point I want to make is the fact that this in itself is an illustration of the amazing grace of God. He doesn't just save righteous people, you know. He saves sinners. He saves sinners like you and me. And he doesn't just save small sinners. He saves people with the most complicated or difficult of paths. People who have committed the most wicked of sins. And he still will save them and use them to fulfill his promises. And can't we all be thankful for that? None of these women were anything like near perfect. And I suspect you and I in our lives or in our paths are not anywhere near perfect either. 
Rahab in her early life was probably the most irreligious and carnal of all the biblical characters, but all these women are chosen and all these women illustrate that God forgives sins and gives people a new life. So yes, this is a difficult, challenging story. You might even say this is a sordid story, but it still highlights all the more the faithfulness and the grace of God. And we all can be thankful for that. Okay, friends, that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining me. I remind you again, if you'd like uh, some links to ways that we can connect to the ministry, uh, they're all available there, along with uh, transcripts and other links to teaching resources in the episode notes of any audio version of this podcast. There's also a link to my Patreon page where you can not only become a patron of this teaching and my ministry, but there are also plans from September to put additional teaching and discipleship resources uh, there, exclusively there for, for your use and to help you with your Christian walk. It's worth mentioning as well that I really appreciate it if you, uh, first of all, like, share or place links to this on any social media you have. It really helps other people see it out there. I believe a review is also really helpful in helping this podcast be more widely seen. I also really appreciate those of you who have made the decision to pray for this ministry, pray that I might have the uh, spiritual and emotional and physical resources to meet this commitment to prepare and do a study 25 minutes a day for what will be probably up to five years. I really, really appreciate your prayerful support. And most of all, I'd just like to thank any of you who happen to be listening to this because that is the most encouraging thing of all for me to see that thousands and thousands of people I've now made the decision to access uh, the Word of God and the study of the Word of God and make that process part of the rhythm for their daily lives. What a privilege it is for me to be able to do that. So thank you again. I do hope that if you've joined us for the first time, you're here for good and I'll see you back here tomorrow. Well, it's tomorrow for me, whatever day it might happen to be for you as we journey together through the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.